Well, welcome. I'm Meredith. And I'm Kristen. We'd like to welcome you to The Writer's Story. And we get together once a month to talk about what's on our minds, what we're working on, and to interview um, an author that's exciting for us. And um, this month we have Belle Boggs, and she is um, a really talented novelist. She also writes short stories and nonfiction. She's a teacher, teaches in an MFA program in North Carolina. Yep. And um, so we're really excited to hear what she has to say. And um, we've been gobbling up her, um, her novel that's just out, The Gulf. Yes. And uh, a lot of fun. Definitely a lot of fun. Yeah. And I loved her Mattapanai Queen, which um, is some years old now, uh, but timeless. And really, her style of writing is absolutely exquisite. So... Anyway, you're in for a treat if you haven't read any of Bell Boggs' work yet, and we are in for a treat to talk with her in a little bit. But meanwhile, we've been um, ourselves talking a little bit about schedule and writing, and yeah, yeah how, how do you find time, and or in some cases, if you've got all the time in the world, how do you determine what of it you'll spend writing and how? Yeah. And I think it's um it's such a struggle, um, but I am in a moment where I am not doing any writing, and there's a, certainly definitely a point when I'm not doing any writing that I think, oh my gosh, um, have you given up? <laughs> yeah. Um, and but then I always get back to it because I usually get very very restless and I get a really great idea and then I can't stop and I must write it. And so I've tried to learn, although I don't think I always do very well, that sometimes you need breaks and that's okay. Um, And that sometimes your break is part of the creative process. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I've been um, in a kind of transition between projects. The Bible book with Oxford is back in the editor's hands, and I have a number of other projects, all of them in fiction forms, that I'd like to return to. And part of the part of my struggle is which do I spend time on? And I was thinking about um, well, I think I'll return to a project that Meredith you've read, the uh, about a little girl who wants to have a cooking show. And that book is in a strong draft, but I think it could benefit from a reread and a revision Mm -hmm. again. Um, And I was thinking that I would treat the scheduling of that work in a similar way as I did the nonfiction that had been under contract and under deadline. Though this is not under contract and not under deadline, the fiction isn't. And so I thought, you know, it. It does get me to work and gets me to get work done when I have a specific period of time I will spend on it, um, whether it's each day or each week. I think there's first, yeah, first is the schedule and what you can do and what will make sense for you to do. But then also I find um, self-imposed deadlines to be very useful. To, even if they do get moved, that you say something like, 
um, I'd like to finish this revision of the book, you know, by June 1st or something. I'm making up a date. Yeah. And then and then you sort of can break it down and work towards that. But you yeah. have that idea in mind. And then yeah. maybe you have a treat scheduled for June 1st that you get <laughs> when you actually finish it. Or maybe you've got another project that's coming up. Yeah. The breaking down part is um, crucial, I think. It is for me anyway. That is, is breaking the project into parts. So... In I terms call it of bite-sized chunks. Yes. <laughs> and the most obvious of those is of course number of pages or chapters. Mm -hmm. But there's there are also certain tasks. Like with revision, for me, one step is rather swiftly reading the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then taking some time to identify how the turn in the plot where that falls and is it effective and does the beginning really set up the story and does the uh, is the unsatisfying so it's harder in a way to figure out how to approach a, that part of the project than for instance the generative composing part because it's not as easy to just say uh, although there are other points in a late revision where it is page numbers right go right over that this you're many going pages. over right you're going yeah. over your line you're almost line editing yeah, I think um, you're right, though. Dividing it up is really important because I think too much, uh, it's, it's too overwhelming to say, tomorrow I shall revise this book. <laughs> yeah. And unrealistic. Oops, it just slipped <laughs> off my list. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think I'll fold the laundry instead. Yeah, so, uh, so, so giving yourself something, a direction of like, read the first three chapters and think about if the book is starting in the right spot. You yes. know, that is a more manageable task, even though it yes. doesn't say, by the end of tomorrow, I'm going to figure out whether or not I really started my book in the right place. You're actually giving yourself a real mm. focus. Yeah. And so then you can do that part, and then you give your brain a break. I think um, I've never been able to write more than, I think, more, more than two hours. I would mm -hmm. say hour and a half kind of is my... Yeah, and at that point, I'm just sort of no use to anybody anymore. So you might as well stop. But I do know people who sit down and write for eight hours at a stretch. And yeah, I for admire their go, For me, it can go longer, um, but the getting started is surprisingly consistently difficult. You would think that after a while, you know that once you get started, you'll really get ripping. And not every day is like that, but many are. Once I get started, then I can keep on. But the getting started every day is still really hard. So one of the things I've taken to doing, and it works um, sometimes, is to lay out the schedule for my work time by uh, units of time, small units of time. Um, and I'm reminded of, and I have it to hand here, a wonderful quote by Annie Dillard about schedule. And this is especially useful when in those periods of my life when I have a bit of time that's unstructured, but actually a lot of things I need to put into that time, <laughs> but it's unstructured. Um, this, so this is a great quote. Annie Dillard said, or wrote, a schedule defends from chaos and whim. It is a net for catching days. 
It is a scaffolding on which a writer can stand and labor with both hands at sections of time. I love. I love, I love how you turned worker into writer. <laughs> oh, I did. Wow. You know what she meant. It's my. It's, it's the lenses in my glasses. Yeah, there uh, you go. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it always changes worker to writer. Yeah, thank you for that correction. No, no, yeah. but I love it. I wow. love it because uh, I don't think that often. People think of writers as laborers, but I have to say it is a lot of work. It is. <laughs> and you do feel it like is. you are wrestling. Um, yes, it's. it feels like manual labor. I can be, like, exhausted. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you hold all the tension. I know manual labor. I know that one, too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, so it helps me. Because I, I am subject to chaos and whim, <laughs> rather vulnerable to it. So to have that notation to myself about how I want to spend at least a chunk of the day really does, it has been helpful to me. Yeah, I, um, I've gone through phases where um, I've written first thing in the morning. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's really useful because you just sort of say, this is the priority. And I'm meeting, you know, I'm meeting my computer at this time. Yeah. And we're gonna. It's usually better as a first draft mm-hmm. for me too. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it's non-negotiable. It's like if you just wake up, you just start. It's yeah. not like should I or shouldn't I? Yeah. No. no just, this you're, is you're what here. you do. <laughs> Keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And I think that is useful. Um, and also, um, I've also done um, for first drafts uh, word count. That yes. I want to achieve. Yes, same. And um, and that is a great technique as well, just because, you know, you could stare at the computer for an hour, but if you say, oh, I've got to write this many words, then you're going to start. You know. Yes, I love. That's a very satisfying. Yeah, and then at the end, of, then, then you as soon as you, you know you write it in thirty minutes, and you can say, "Oh, I'm done." Yes. Bravo, me, and I have the rest of the day off. Yeah. If you don't finish it, yes, then. I have to do something dreadful, like write at nine at night when I'm not at home. Yeah. Not feeling like that's what I want to be doing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I, I, I love it. Definitely. Definitely. So, yeah, I have to think a little bit about a revision schedule, and it's never a good – it's always a little bit of a challenge. You do. I think you need a big chunk of time mm-hmm. for a revision to really get into it. Mm-hmm. It's not something you can kind of dip in and out of. Yeah, not for something like a novel. When you have a lot of moving pieces, unless, I don't know if you guys out there in in listener world have techniques for how you can keep all those pieces alive for a long time. But yeah, I find the revision needs, needs uh, extended time of attention in order to be, and it's, it, it's paradoxically the most efficient way to do it for me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. No, I mean, because my, my dipping in and out of the writing process allows for lots of repetition. Where mm-hmm. I'll write a paragraph and then I'll write it again, you know. Yeah. Or you have to be reminded <laughs> of what, yeah, what you've said, what you haven't said, where this is headed, mm-hmm. how you want to get there, what the pacing is, even maybe the tone. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So making that consistent. So. Yeah. So we've got some work ahead of us. Some scheduling. Some scheduling to do. (laughs) First scheduling, (laughs) then writing. (laughs) And I am not a list maker. Are you a list maker? Oh, yes. I love lists. I love a good list. Oh. Uh, One of my uh, 
one of my favorite early books was Frog and Toad. You know, I have you ever read Frog and Toad? There, it's like a it's like an I can read book. Yeah, and uh, now I'm not going to remember who made the list. I think it was Frog. Anyway, uh, he makes his list and it's like get up, get dressed, you know, and then he loses his list, and so the other character has to talk him down off the ledge. <laughs> I bet so, you can still so get dressed. I'm sure you can still do things on your list without your list. But the most satisfying thing about a list, and um, the iPhone just doesn't have this, uh, and it is crossing things off. So that yeah. is why I still make lists on the back of envelopes. That, and that may be why I don't, because I don't usually do the things on the list. It would be great if There's I your did wish list. Well, why don't you do stuff that you've already accomplished today? Ooh. You could say fed the dog. Ooh, check. Check. That Moving does on. Good. <laughs> Put on clothes. Chat. Yeah. <laughs> I need to revisit Frog and Toad, clearly. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Liz, they're your friend. <laughs> well, we are so excited to be um, gathering today with guest author Belle Boggs. Belle is the author of a number of different books. She has um, experience in all of these genres that we're flirting with ourselves um, in short story and nonfiction form and also is coming out with a new novel called The Gulf which we've had a chance to dip into and is great fun reading. Her um, book Mattapanai Queen was a winner of the Fiction Award for the Library of Virginia um, an award ceremony I got to attend um, but Belle and I haven't had much of a chance to visit apart from that. So we're super excited to have you here, Belle. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I can tell you're Virginian because you you guys know how to say Madhup and I. Ah, she was yes. practicing. <laughs> In the mirror. <laughs> I actually don't know how, but I am a Virginian. Oh, and you see, yeah. and I'm not a Virginian by, I don't know, by birth. But I have lived here a little while. I, I, I'm actually from Charlottesville. So there you go. And my mother grew up in Alexandria, Virginia, which I know Virginians sort of see as Virginia with an asterisk. <laughs> and Belle, where did you grow up? Well, I grew up actually along the Mattapanai River, which when I tell people, to, if you know, in other places, um, I just tell people it rhymes with batted an eye. Um, oh, that's great. And, um, or, uh, so I grew up in King William and then King and Queen counties. Um, my parents live in Walkerton, um, which is a really small town of about, I don't know, 75 people, um, on the King and Queen side of the Mattapanai river, um, which is about, an hour from Richmond. Um, okay. I was going to say you beat me with the small town, the, um, I grew up near Scottsville, so I actually grew up in the country, country, but um, the town had about 250 people, and then they, they, they moved the border and doubled the size of the town to 500. <laughs> That's one way to do it. <laughs> so, so speaking of small towns, um, so it's interesting, um, we, we were reading The Gulf, and I, and I know that you make your main character from Virginia. Did you picture her being from the kind of place that you grew up, or did you? Yeah, she's also from the Tidewater part of the state, and um, uh, also went to 
the kind of schools I, I pictured her going to the kind of um, public schools that I went to, um, so small, rural, and then um, moved away to go to college and grad school and, um, you know, returns to Virginia at a couple of points in the book. Um, but, and that's where her father and, um, who's a community college professor and her, um, younger sister who is, um, uh, the, you know, she married at a pretty young age because, um, well, you know, she married for a variety of reasons, but was that they lost their mother at a, um, uh, when her younger sister was was quite young and then had very different reactions to that. And so, um, uh, Marianne, the protagonist of the novel, um, is really interested in, um, art. Her mother was an artist and, um, she becomes a poet and she is also an atheist. Her sister is, um, uh, uh, devout evangelical and is married to, um, a pastor at her church. Yeah, I loved this um, oh, this tension between uh, belief and unbelief, between uh, a kind of Christian culture in America these days and a culture of, sort of liberal humanism that you deftly weave into this story and with great good humor, but also... I never felt that you were dismissive of kind of either group categorically, um, but I, yeah, I had I really appreciated that um, tension that you weave through the book. I'm wondering you. if you, and actually, I'll I'll tell you when I first started, I thought, oh my gosh, Bell has got some guts because I thought the pushback on this possible pushback from from Christians and also from um, from kind of both sides if you will the the um, humanists artistic humanists who might attend <laughs> workshops and MFA programs <laughs> wow in one big sweep she's <laughs> just raised yeah. raised the yeah. ire of yeah so t- would you talk a little bit about that thinking and yeah well um, I, it was really important to me um, writing the book that um, I look critically, but also um, in a sensitive and empathetic way at both, well, at all the characters, of course, but at both groups that the book sort of takes a look at. So um, the book is about um, a struggling poet um, who is also an atheist who moves, um, she gets kind of roped into um, moving to Florida, to the Gulf Coast, um, a little north of Sarasota, to start the first low-residency MFA program for evangelical Christians. And she does this at the request and sort of um, uh, uh, demand, in some ways, of um, of her ex um, fiance who um, believes that they have this great opportunity to um, uh, use his aunt's, his great aunt's um, broken down motel that's um, uh, on the Gulf Coast of Florida and use this this space to 
do what she always joked about doing when they were in grad school together. He's a fiction writer and she's a poet and they're both struggling in different ways. And she always used to say, you know, what would be great when she would have a couple drinks, she would say, I bet you could make a bunch of money if you started an MFA program or a low residency program for evangelicals. Um, wouldn't that be great? You could have it and, you know, somewhere warm and sunny. And, you know, that she, she never thought she would get a job teaching in, um, like a, you know, quote unquote, real MFA program. Cause the school that they start is actually for profit and, um, not an MFA program. It's more of a certificate program <laughs> and they don't have a lot of great, um, organizational skills <laughs> as they start the school. So it starts to get taken over by um, these shady investors who develop um, for-profit um, Christian-themed schools. So they have a Christian medical building school and a Christian cosmetology school and a Christian school for you know, legal studies and, right. and things like that. And so, yeah, it was, it was important to me to, um, you know, to, I wanted to write an entertaining book and a book that was interested in, you know, the things that I'm interested in, the things like for-profit education and politics and manipulation, but also that the, um, that the book would, um, you know, maybe make you think that it was going to, um, uh, you know, skewer a particular group of people, but in fact was going to kind of, uh, change, um, as the book went along and as Marianne sees that her relationship to these students, um, she thinks she'll, will be very easy to take advantage of. Um, uh, she thinks that that will, um, you know, her relationship to these students changes quite a lot as the book goes on. And I think, but to answer your question, I think it's probably unlikely that I'll be invited to teach at a low residency program. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know either. They might have assumed that you've got tons and tons of experience doing that <laughs> right. since you have it wrote from it. Um, I also, um, I spent about uh, a decade on the south side of Williamsburg and Williamsburg, Brooklyn, not Williamsburg, Virginia. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was quite familiar with um, some of your descriptions. I actually set my mystery novels in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, because I think it is fascinating. All yeah, the, I, li yeah I lived in Greenpoint. Um, that was where um, I, we might have lived in the, the neighborhoods at a similar time I was in Greenpoint for a little while and um and so yeah that was my my where I imagined Marianne living well I left um in 2009 yeah we lived there too we left in 2005 and moved to North Carolina in 2005 oh, oh okay okay yeah so yeah we moved there I guess in 98 Okay, yeah, 2002 to 2005. Right, right. But we were actually, uh, we started off in the infamous McKibben lofts, as the New York Times oh. would refer to them, um, which, yeah. was, which was the fifth stop. And then my husband was an artist, and he was very instrumental in starting the fifth stop open studios. Um, and I would say that every third person came in and said, how much do you pay in rent? You know, and the next thing we know. <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah. He, he, he started to become a, the, the character in Catch-22, except instead of oil, they would, they would turn it into condos. So it, I, think he changed, I think he lost like at least six art studios in New York. Oh. And at the point, at the point he was they like, got too forget popular. it. 
<laughs> yeah, his last art studio, I think, is now a movie theater. <laughs> oh, my goodness. We go back to visit friends, and we're like, where Where are we? What street is this again? Yeah. It's so crazy. It's so changed, so, changed much. so much. You haven't been there? Even the yeah, I have, and I've been, it's just changed so much. Even the neighborhood where I used to teach, I taught in Bedford-Stuyvesant at the Ralph Avenue stop, and that neighborhood is really different too it's um yeah it's it's astounding yeah I think it's all changed a lot it's all changed a lot I mean quite frankly quite a lot of Williamsburg uh, needed to change it's kind of a dump um you know we lived catty corner to an abandoned lot that had like an old boat in it and then a homeless person froze to death you know that's how full of drunk it was yeah. <laughs> my my dad would say oh i saw your neighborhood again on uh, nypd blue <laughs> <laughs> just what your parents want <laughs> just what your parents i was right by the williamsburg bridge so <laughs> so bell i'm wondering a little bit about in the gulf you do again such a beautiful job of um, creating sympathy for these different characters. You also um, have some point of view changes, if I remember incorrectly. And I just loved like getting to know Janice a little bit better. Um, yeah, Janine, yes. Yeah, the hapless poet. Um, the angry Olmec teacher. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm wondering what your kind of the process of building this book was like. Did you have a particular character you wanted to make sure was the central character did you did you toggle time anyway how did you build it with these different points of view too well um as a short story writer um i think i'm used to switching points of view and having that as a um just as a you know as you switch from even if you're writing in a third person limited sticking to one character in a short story soon enough, you'll write another short story and have another character to work with. And, um, that what is just a familiar storytelling practice for me. So when I started to write this book, I thought that that would be the best way for me to build a novel that I hoped could, um, you know, maintain my interest and the interest of the reader and um, uh, work structurally for, so there are four points of view. There's Marianne, who is the central character and protagonist who's quite flawed and um, thinks that she'll be able to, um, you know, to kind of uh, pay back her student loans by running this um, school that she's not tremendously invested in and that is also, um, uh, you know, not well organized and um, is uh, for profit. And, um, you know, she thinks, well, that, you know, my school wasn't, wasn't exactly like this, but they, you know, I didn't really come out of the MFA experience with, um, with a lot of prospects. And I'm also deeply in debt. And so, you know, I'll do this for a few years and I will get out of debt and it'll be okay. And then there's Janine, who is another poet um, who comes from, um, uh, 
you know, another part of Florida from the Panhandle and from a really different experience. She's a self-taught poet. She's a home economics teacher, former stay-at-home mom, and she's a little older than um, Marianne. She's about a decade older and um, is very sincere in her desire to, um, you know, to, to learn from teachers and to be in a community of poets. And so she arrives and um, is probably the point of view character with the next, um, I would call her the next most important character. And then there's Eric, um, a novelist who is um, uh, working on his second book, not having a lot of success with that, who is Marianne's um, ex-fiance. They were engaged for about a day and have had a continued friendship kind of off and on, will they get back together relationship. Um, he's also a serial proposal proposer. So he proposed to like a few women and, um, is, um, kind of through his bre- with his brother, who's, um, um, a wall street investor, um, is, uh, they're, you know, running the show behind the scenes. His brother is very much running the show and kind of finding the other investors in God's word, God's world. Um, this, uh, organization that invests in, and develops Christian-themed for-profit schools, and um, and then there's Devante Gold, who is a former um, R&B superstar who's kind of um, looking to make a comeback, and um, he believes that the best way or most um, expeditious way to make a comeback will be to write a, um, a best-selling. Um, autobiographical novel, and he thinks that that's going to happen at the ranch. So Janine and Devante are the two um, uh, characters who are students, and then there are the two sort of teacher administrators um, characters. And I thought, you know, also, you know, in addition to just being interested in writing from the perspective of different characters, I thought that that would be a way to show um, the different sides of the school from the perspective of the teachers and then from the perspective of the students um, and kind of get a look at um, the different ways to use the school and the different ways that the school becomes um, a gathering place for, for different kinds of people. Cool. Yeah, sorry, I got Janine. I called her Janice back then. But oh, that's okay. Yeah. Um, and did it come, then did you write sections kind of as independent units and then find where they belonged? Or did you kind of write it straight on through? Well, I wrote it. So I started writing, the book is set in 2011 and 2012. Um, And the sort of inspiration for that time period was the sort of backlash um, um, that happened with um, the Tea Party, and um, which was very strongly felt in my community of Virginia, where I'm from. There are just all these all the signage appeared, this like very ugly um, uh, sort of um, like letters to the editor and the paper, and just the political environment got very intense, even though we were still in the Obama years. And so that was what, what I started thinking about. And it said in 2011, 2012, and that was when I started writing the book. So um, I did draft the book just kind of straight through. You know, I made some outlines and thought about which the characters that I wanted to follow and, um, and, and drafted straight through and was probably finished with a draft, I guess, in 
early 2013 and had the book under contract um, with my um, with my publishing house, Grey Wolf Press, and was working with the same editor, Katie Duglinski, I worked with on Madoff and I Queen. And around that time, I also had the idea. I'd been writing essays about infertility and um, uh, and different paths to parenthood. And um, I had the idea that I wanted to write a nonfiction book too. And so I wrote a proposal after getting some advice about how to write a proposal and put, put one of those together and um, book proposal for a nonfiction book under contract in the same year. And, um, you know, in talking with my editor, because I, I knew that I wanted to work on the Gulf, which had a different title back then. Um, I, I wanted to do a significant revision and I, and, um, I was a little worried that, I would lose my steam on the infertility um, uh, essays, the, the, the nonfiction book that I was working on because I was also pregnant at the time. And so um, I, you know, we talked about maybe switching the order of the books. And so we decided that I would work on the nonfiction book first, which I did. And that came out in 2016. And so it was only after that book was published um, that I was able to go back to this book and and start revising it. And so that was um, a little bit into um, actually the, the Trump presidency, which was you know completely unexpected. It was an unexpected place to return to um, to this this novel. And um, and so yes, I did start. You know, I, I kind of drafted it all in a row, but it changed a lot after I went back to it. Sure. It sounds like, I mean, well, you had had some time as things change with time. Um, right. But, um, but then this other project, this nonfiction book, published to great acclaim. And congratulations on your little ones. Yeah, thank <laughs> um, you so much. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, well, I'm asking all the questions, but I have more. Well, I'm, I'm curious. Um, what you what you feel about in terms of writing short stories, nonfiction, and novels? Just talking about a little about that process. What makes you maybe decide that what a project is going to be, or are you? Um, is it hard to keep them all the balls in the air, or I don't know. I just I think I have lots of questions. Yeah, about that. it's kind of mysterious, isn't it? How do you know? Um, I don't know. Do you all know when you're working on a project? Do you know um, what it will be when you begin? Oh, that's a good question. I, I feel like that's always a, I mean, I, I also write screenplays and I think, and I know Kristen does too. And I, I'm usually pretty sure it's not a short story, though occasionally I will write a short story with much pain and suffering. <laughs> it's really hard. It's really hard to do. Um, but I do have that question, is, is this really enough for a book? I think sometimes it's a good question, or what kind of book is this going to be? Um, yeah, I guess I knew this would be a novel when I started it because I um, had just, it was too complicated <laughs> to, to um, write as a short story. It would be, um, you know, uh, yeah, it, wouldn't, it yeah. would never, it would not have worked as a short story. And then um, but when I have written, when I started writing the short stories for my collection, I didn't know that I was writing a book until I'd written several of the stories. And when I started writing 
the essays for the nonfiction book, I knew I was interested in writing essays. And of course I knew I was writing nonfiction, but I didn't realize that I could, that I had a, a book's worth of material until I started delving into the research process. And then I thought, okay, well, I had, well, what about this? And I would like to write about adoption. And I would also um, like to write about surrogacy and, and, you know, I would also like to write about animals. And so um, I, um, you know, I'd like also like to write about finance. And, and so that outlining process became very helpful. And I saw, okay, that, that could be a book. And then um, right now I'm working on um, a novel, I just call it a short novel, um, that, um, started as a short story. And I, I take a lot of notes when I'm writing fiction before I get started about character and setting and just different things that I'm interested in touching on. And so I started keeping these notes in my phone actually, because I would write them late at night. Um, and, um, uh, you know, sometimes in the middle of the night after nursing my daughter, I'd start just kind of typing notes. And then, you know, looking back at the notes, I realized, okay, this is actually too much. This will have to parcel out into chapters. So it's too mm. much for a short story. And so I, I think, so I'm calling it a short novel just so that I can, you know, bear to get started on it <laughs> and, um, you know, get, get myself excited about, um, about writing it because it seems, I mean, what I like about a short story is kind of the same thing that I like about an essay or even a, you know, there's something really satisfying about writing a long form nonfiction piece because you can kind of see, okay, this is the work that I need to do, and I'll begin here and I'll end here. And it's a little harder to do that over the four. You know, it, it it definitely took me longer than I expected to to write this novel, even though I I did expect it to be, you know, a couple years project. It it, it took longer than that. Yeah, yeah, that is hard when you you're not sure. Um, well, I, I did find out much to my horror after agreeing to judge uh, short stories for the Edgars that short stories in their category could be up to, um, I'm trying to remember if, if it was 50,000 words. It was something oh, very yeah. long and I, and, and <laughs> wow. I, novellas, a novella, I guess would be what you're, what you're working on, but I, you know, I actually nearly had a rebellion of authors on my hands who had agreed to be on my committee and then <laughs> saw the number of pages exactly. that they needed to read. Everybody calm down. Yeah. Is, is that right? I, right. I'm not calling it a novella because I'm um, uh, thinking that my agent will like it better if I just call it a short novel. A novelette. <laughs> I do love and, I, and the idea did come out of a class. My, um, wonderful colleague, John Kessel, um, uh, has written some amazing novellas and, um, is, um, you know, as well as short fiction and novels. And he teaches every now and again, a novella workshop in, um, in our MFA program. And so the students are in that class right now. I think actually they do their final workshop of their finished novellas on Wednesday. And I had in mind that I would be in that class writing, drafting a novella with them. And, um, so I've just been actually doing the work on my own because it didn't turn out that I, um, that it, you know, fit the schedule that I have going on this semester. But, um, but, but that was kind of the inspiration. Cool. So one of the things we love to know from our guests is when you got started writing or when you knew you were a writer, um, were you somebody who grew up thinking this was 
something you knew you were going to do right out of the gate or did it come around later? How did that evolve, evolve for you? Yeah. Um, my mom is an artist and, um, and both my parents and a lot of people in my family are really big storytellers, um, both in the sense of, you know, telling great stories. And my dad is also terrific uh, liar. <laughs> so, um, I, um, you know, in the best sense where he's just like pulling your leg all the time. But, um, so I grew up in a, you know, kind of culture of art and storytelling. And I think around fifth grade was when I decided that this was what I wanted to do. And, um, it was also um, that time that, um, I learned that there was, and I don't know how I would have known this because I don't think my parents knew it actually, but I learned that there was a special school after college that you could go to, uh, you know, that where you could just work on writing and you would just, you know, that, that's of course not all that we do in an MFA program, but that was what I, I had the idea. And so I think I had the idea that I would go to graduate school and go to a special school for writing um, at a, like around fifth grade, which was also... Wow. Um, because I remember that I somehow knew that one of the schools was, you know, the, or the best school was Iowa, which is not where I went to school, but we also, that was when we started taking the Iowa standardized tests. And I thought, I remember thinking, I need to do really good on this test because I'm going to try to go to that school. (laughs) 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 have, you know, complete information, (laughs) but I did know that it was a possibility. And somehow I thought that the possibility applied, you know, applied to me. And, um, you know, part of that was that we had a young authors program in our school. And I also had a teacher who would, um, give us time to use our spelling words to write short stories. And, and then I had another teacher in sixth grade who let us on Fridays write short stories. And so that was just always the thing that I enjoyed doing the most and what I thought that, you know, that I would one day do. Wow. I don't, I don't remember when I heard about MFA programs, actually. It definitely was not fifth grade. (laughs) Fifth grade was when I learned about paragraphs. I don't know why I would have known that other than I like to read a lot and I read my I read just you know mostly my mother's books but it's not like my parents went you know they didn't um you know go to grad school or and you know they were hippies and dropped out of college so um and so I, I don't know how that information filtered into my fifth grade brain but I do remember that it was there my parents were hippies too, but they, my mother finished her PhD first before she started a commune. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> She's on the older side, <laughs> but she taught at a community college here in Charlottesville for 35 oh, wow, that's years. Great. So yeah. Yeah. Um, well, that, that's really fascinating. I think the, like discovering that writing is as a career is an option, I think is a really interesting aha moment for a lot of writers. Yeah. 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 Because I think we go from sort of, I'm glad that I didn't know how hard it would be at the time. Cause I actually remember also, um, having a visit. And I think it's so important when artists go to, um, you know, artists and writers go to public schools, um, when they, you know, do their tours or go to a festival, we have a 
festival not too far from here in green, not too far from where I live um, in Greensboro. And I was looking it up and looking at the events that I would like to go to. And I saw that there, I think maybe all of their writers who are at their book festival are going to do some type of school contact, either going into the school or Skyping with the school or something like that. And I think it's so important because I know a lot of people who just didn't know that that was an option or a possibility until a writer came to their school. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, with the, the, you know, budget cuts for arts funding and, um, you know, the pressures on schools, I think that it's really important to do that. And so, you know, that was something that I was, I've been an educator in different ways. My, you know, whole career as the, you know, the, the thing that I, um, that, I do to support my writing, but also feeds my writing. And so that was something that, you know, was important to me to be a significant part of this book. It's, you know, the, this question of education and what you, you know, what you owe to students and, you know, and, and, and what, um, you know, what being an educator also, you know, the, you know, the ethical considerations, but then also what it does for you as an artist, because it is, you know, part of that strong relationship between um, Janine and Marianne is, you know, also their work as, um, as educators. Yeah. That's so interesting that you're talking about that. I'm, I'm teaching a, a workshop right now at, um, at a local writing center, a mystery writing class. And um, one of the women on the first day, we started talking about something and um, mentioned another teacher um, basically saying very harm, harmful, hurtful things to the students, which really like hurt my heart <laughs> because oh, I was like, what? I, she just, I can't remember what she said, but it was, it was something where someone was not very like, I guess, kind to their students. Mm, yeah. And, uh, and I, and I just realized like the, the pressure of, of what you say really resonating as a teacher. And I think it's what you're trying to maybe say a little bit about is I guess it's different if someone reads your poem and says this is a piece of crap and you go, oh, well, they know nothing about poetry. But to have your poetry teacher. Someone that you're investing time or money or yeah. you're, you're respecting say something harmful, um, you know, the ramifications of that. Yeah. And, uh, right. And how hard it is to hear criticism mm -hmm. of your writing. There's something about writing that is, and especially if it's done as we we want it to be real and fresh, maybe even raw at times. Is then, yeah, to hear somebody's remarks about that that yeah. may not be positive can be hard. But I think, yeah, there's a also a maturity as a writer. I think in accepting critique without making it a personal attack or without thinking, oh, my experience is invalid or something like that. But then, you know, and then Bell's obviously taken it to this other level where now you're attacking Jesus Christ. Yes, right. <laughs> um, yeah, a whole, a whole faith. Um, as yeah, we record so, on Easter. <laughs> uh, exactly. So, Bell, I'm wondering if there are things as a teacher of writing that you especially like to teach or things that um, you are excited to introduce to students by way of elevating their writing, taking it to another level technique? Um, well, you know, I, so I teach, um, 
uh, now I teach um, in the MFA program at NC State, and um, I'm currently the director of that program. And um, so I teach undergraduates as well as graduate students. And our program is, um, you know, a workshop-based program, but we also do a lot of one-on-one um, -on -one with students. So every student that comes into our fiction or poetry um, program is um, paired up with a mentor or advisor, thesis director, who helps that um, student work on, work toward um, the completion of um, a manuscript, a book-length manuscript of poetry or a book-length manuscript of fiction, short story collection, or a novel. And um, so that, you know, in, in the classroom, I think, you know, it's, you know, universal whether you're teaching first grade, um, you know, writing workshop, which you can do and which I have done, or undergraduate, or continuing education, or graduate, um, it's really important to have a strong community. And um, so that's something that we focus on um, in all of our workshops is, um, you know, whether I'm teaching intro or, or, the, or the grad workshop is, um, because we are, our workshop is also really open to um, writers who are doing different work in um, either kind of genre-defined work, so they're interested in, you know, this, uh, you know, work that's um, not quite speculative, not quite, um, um, or, or somewhat speculative, but then they also write realism, or students who are writing straight realism, or students who are writing um, science fiction. We have had some really terrific science fiction writers in our program, um, thanks to John Kessel and, and his tremendous reputation in that community. So um, just establishing a baseline for everyone to understand um, you know, how to approach the work and how to, as you were saying, you know, kind of see what the writer is, is trying to do and, you know, and, and really see what's on the page, um, which was so important to, so kind of training that, um, you know, training ourselves as readers to attend to what is on the page and, you know, what the writer's ambitions are and, and you know, what is being communicated to each individual reader. Um, we also, in, in my workshop, um, uh, read, um, we, I, I usually make a selection of, and I'm kind of, I'm working on my selection for next year, um, uh, when I'll be teaching the grad workshop again in the fall of, um, debut works. So debut novels and, um, debut, um, short story collections, um, recent and, um, and also, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, more, uh, you know, older work. So we, uh, start with a reading together of, um, Madame Bovary, which, you know, some of the wow. students will not have read. Um, and, um, and it, even if they have read it, a lot of them haven't read the Lydia Davis translation, which is just so sharp and funny. And so we, we read that one together and kind of talk through, we do a lot of um, discussion of point of view and how point of view works in that novel. And then you move into discussion of, um, of, you know, usually more contemporary, um, debuts. So I'm trying to figure out, I, I, I know we'll read, um, Tommy Orange's, uh, there, there, because oh, I love that book so love much. That book. And 
Yeah, so good. And um, so I think that will be really interesting for students who are interested in writing um, novels that work in a short story-like way, um, where each individual, you know, many of the individual chapters can stand alone, and also novels that have, uh, um, you know, a lot of different characters and a lot of different point-of-view characters. And then um, I think we also will probably um, read um, A Lucky Man by Janelle Brinkley, um, which was also a Grey Wolf Press book, because um, uh, I loved that collection last year. Um, I'm thinking about doing Black Tickets, um, the Jane Ann Phillips collection, because I'm finding that a lot of students don't um, uh, know that collection, and then when I introduce it to them, they like, oh my gosh, I love this book. It's so great, <laughs> and um, has just a tremendous mix of really, um, you know, kind of traditional short stories and then also short stories that are, um, you know, really interesting, very dark flash pieces. So anyway, I'm pulling together the list that we'll do, but um, that kind of introducing students to work and talking to them about books that excite me, books that I'm reading at the same time they're reading them is just part of the great pleasure of of, um, of teaching grad students and undergraduates too, because I have really fantastic undergraduates. Um, we have really, we, we do a reading series um, at our school. We usually have about six different writers um, coming to campus to um, to read, and um, they always do a little Q&A at the end of their reading. We always have a big crowd, and our undergraduates ask the best questions, and they're, wow. um, you know, I've had other people from, you know, outside of our school come up to me and say, wow, your undergraduates are amazing. That's so, great. Um, very yeah, awesome. feeling. Well, I want to sign up for your class. Yeah, that's <laughs> great. It's a little bit of a drive. Yeah, but... yeah. Not <laughs> too bad. Not too bad. It's 29. <laughs> <laughs> well, Belle, thank you so much again for joining us. Again, this is Belle Boggs. Her new novel, The Gulf, is coming out from Grey Wolf Press. And boy, is it a fun read and rich. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank it was you. great to talk with you. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Well, it was lovely to chat with Bill Boggs, and I hope that she will be coming to the Festival of the Book next year, and I'll get to meet her in person. Yes. It's always the time of year when we tempt all the wonderful writers here to our hometown. <laughs> That's right. But meanwhile, she does have some events scheduled, so do check on her website. It's Belle, B-E-L-L-E, excuse me, B-O-G-G-S, Bell Boggs has a number of upcoming events. We were right, just chatting a little bit about the yeah. Richmond event. We're thinking May 15th. Um, so do Chop check suey. it out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and it was just so interesting to hear a little bit more. I know we've talked about revision and um, the whole notion of of sort of addressing what's on the page with her students. I did, I did totally want to sign up for her class. Yeah, yeah. Maybe she will start teaching it virtually. <laughs> <laughs> and I loved hearing a little bit about the work that she did before she started writing. Um, some people just launch right onto the page with whatever happens to come to mind and go from there. But it was interesting to hear her say that she takes, spent some time taking notes, making notes about character mm -hmm. setting mm -hmm. um, and some of the things that will become the story. Yeah, before before launching into it. Yeah, 
and using her phone to do it. <laughs> I, I don't know that I could mom, keep track of my notes that way. No, I wonder if she was doing it, record a recording. It is challenging to write while nursing, um, but it is not impossible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Many women do it. Many women do yeah, it. And it, it, is, is. it is a very quiet house, 3 a.m. or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we hope that y'all are inspired out there, your writers, to get back to it, um, and readers to check out Bell Boggs's beautiful writing. And we'll be back again uh, with another episode with another wonderful author and um, look forward to speaking more about writing then. Yeah. Thanks for joining us.